Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at Good morning, everyone. Uh, at this time, we'll go ahead and dismiss the three to five-year-olds and six and seven-year-olds to their class. And while they're doing that, um, let me introduce myself. For those of you who have not heard me preach in a while, my name is Josh Moore, the lead pastors here at, at the District Church. Um, it is a joy, as always, to be able to open up God's Word and worship with you this morning. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Luke chapter 19. Starting in verse 28, we will be walking through the triumphal entry. Um, if you're not aware, today is what most would consider Palm Sunday. Uh, it is the Sunday before the resurrection. Um, it is the beginning of Holy Week or Passion Week. Um, if you've been in church long enough, you might have heard these terms. Um, and what this week ultimately culminates in is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This last week of Jesus' life is, in fact, so important to the gospel writers uh, that if you read through their accounts of Jesus' life, they take almost two-thirds of their writings to write about Jesus' last week of his life. So you look in Matthew, he starts Jesus' last week in chapter 21 of chapter 28, of, of 28 chapters. Mark does the same. He starts chapter 11 out of 16. Luke, as we'll see here today, starts in chapter 19 and, and goes all the way through 24. And then John, who actually has the most writing on Jesus' last week of his life, starts in chapter 12 out of the 21 chapters in his book. It's, in fact, one of the few stories that we find in all four gospel accounts. This last week is a big deal. It's a big deal to the gospel writers, and I hope this morning you'll see that it should be as well a big deal to us as believers in Christ, this triumphal entry. But two things that Luke does that is unique to his writing versus Matthew, Mark, and John is Luke tries to help us understand that Jesus set his eyes towards Jerusalem, set his eyes towards the cross long before this entry. In Luke 9, starting in verse 51, we see that Jesus begins this distinct mission towards the cross, and it doesn't stop there. And so everything we can look at from chapter 9, verses 51, all the way to Jesus' death on the cross is him working towards this work. Hear what Luke has to say in chapter 9. He says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, which is taken up on the cross, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards the cross. Luke exclusively highlights this entrance, but not Jesus entering into the city. He takes this chapter 9 and says, Jesus set his eyes towards Jerusalem, his eyes towards what he came to accomplish and then he brings us up into chapter 19, the entry into Jerusalem, the culmination of his work to be finished at the cross. Now, if you read Luke's version, um, what I'd like to do is read it through the lens of a wedding procession. Now, God's, I think, ordained irony is my first sermon back is this sermon using this example 
but I just got married. So yes, the imagery of my marriage is probably going to come out in this example. And for those of you who are single in this room, I still have my cynical side in there of like, of course he's going to get up and preach about his wedding. Please hear me. I have you in mind as well, but I promise not to do this often. Um, But when you think about a wedding, right? When my wedding started, Dwayne and I walked down the aisle and we began this processional, right? It, It was the beginning of the wedding. And then our groomsmen and bridesmaids followed. More often than not, when you have a wedding, usually after that, flower girls and ring bearers come. But if you've seen some of our wedding pictures, we didn't have those. We had flower men, and they came down the aisle to Cotton Eye Joe. And you'll see some pictures of Jeremy throwing flowers up very soon on Facebook. It was an extravagant event. Very funny. But then from this, from this moment, Typically, when the flower girls or flower men are done walking down the aisle, the music stops. The music changes. Everybody understands the moment that is about to happen. For me, Heidi walked down the aisle, and I got to see her beautiful dress, her beautiful face, her walking down towards me, and all that I'd longed for and prayed for in being a husband was finally coming to fruition. But everybody knew in that crowd This is what this wedding was about. The bride coming down the aisle to her groom. Now, of course, when that happened, then everybody looks back at me to make sure that I'm crying, which I did. And then they look back at her, seeing the bride on her way. And as the bride walks down the aisle to meet the groom, as Heidi walked down to meet me, the ceremony then begins. And so up until this point, from chapter 9 all the way to chapter 19, this is what's happening. The procession has started. Jesus has made his way to Jerusalem. And now as we enter into the triumphal entry, the bride is at the door. Or in this case, the groom is at the door, heading into the city to secure his bride, the church, by the way of the cross. And God set this plan up, as we'll even see in this passage today, by bringing Jews into Jerusalem during the time of Passover so that all of Israel could see the true Passover lamb. And so this is the context in which we have the triumphal entry today in Luke. And as we read this narrative, maybe you've heard this story before, maybe you've even heard me preach this before, but what I want to to remind us today as we read this narrative is that these are real people and these are real emotions that people have. This praise is not just something that we're reading on paper. These are men and women who've longed for a Messiah for 400 years. And in comes this man named Jesus, who is doing mighty works in the name of the Lord. He is healing. He has power. And you can just think, through the ministry of Christ, these Israelites thinking, maybe this is finally the one. He is coming on a donkey, as the Old Testament would tell us. Maybe he's the one to bring us peace. Maybe he's the one to set us free from Roman oppression. Let us praise him. And what we'll see this morning for us today is that this truth is still the same. The one who came on this donkey to bring peace is our king. He is the peace 
brings God and man together to reconcile us and to save us from our sin. He is the king over all, and he is worthy of our praise. So here's my main point this morning that I want us to see from Luke's writing is that Jesus is worthy of our praise. As we'll see in this passage today, that is the response of the people. And it is right and it is true because he is the king who has brought us peace and has reconciled us between God, has reconciled us back to God by the death on his cross, the shedding of his blood, and the resurrecting from the grave. We can now have peace. And Jesus offers this to us today. So let's pray and then we'll jump into Luke's narrative of the triumphal entry. Lord, you are worthy of our praise. As we sang this morning, as Grant reminded us through the liturgy, you are worthy, worthy of our praise, Lord. Not, because, not just because of your works done on the cross, not just because the promises you fulfilled. Lord, ultimately, you are worthy of our praise because you are Lord. You are holy, righteous, just, and good, and we praise you because of these truths. And in your infinite wisdom, you have created this beautiful plan of redemption where you come to seek and save the lost and to be king over all in order that we would find true peace. Lord, help us this morning to have ears to hear and eyes to see your wisdom and to receive your word so that we may trust you truly as king of our lives. And as your servant this morning, speak through me. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It is for your glory and our joy that we praise you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's take a look, starting in verse 28, what Luke has to say. He writes, And when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now I want to do a bit of context here before we jump into the triumphal entry, and I'm sorry to stop and go on you, but when Luke writes phrases like this, when Jesus said these things, or we see in verse 11, when they, his disciples, had heard what Jesus has said, what he's trying to do is help us go back to the prior conversation or the prior parable. And so if we go all the way back to the beginning of Luke 19, what we see is him telling us about this wee little man named Zacchaeus, this tax collector who heard Jesus was coming into the city, and he, all he wanted to do was see him. And what did he do? He got up on a tree, right? Jesus saw him and went and had dinner with him that evening and saved him and forgave him of his sins. This wee little man. The story ends with Jesus saying in verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, and this is what he did for Zacchaeus. And as the, the disciples heard of these things, verse 11 then tells us, Jesus gave them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was, appear, was about to appear immediately. So Jesus gives this parable to help the disciples understand what is about to happen in the triumphal entry. You see, this parable is about a noble king who goes away to secure a city and he tells his citizens, here are minas that I'm going to give you. Take them, use them, grow them. 
And we find in the story that there are some that take the minas and they grow them, they, they get more money through them. And Jesus comes back, or the, the nobleman comes back and says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Then we also find disobedient citizens of that kingdom who have received the minas and did nothing with it. And then finally, in this parable, we see enemies of God's kingdom or enemies of this nobleman's kingdom, and they get destroyed. And so the point of this parable, as Jesus is walking into this entry of Jerusalem, what Luke is trying to get us to see, what Luke is telling us Jesus is saying to his disciples is, yes, we are about to walk into Jerusalem. I'm about to announce that I am king, but I want you to know that I am like the nobleman. I must go off, and I must give you minas. I must give you work And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to judge that work. So don't expect the kingdom to come right now. He's trying to help them be prepared for what is about to happen as he goes to the cross. And so this is what this parable is about. And this is how the parable then connects to what the disciples are about to see in the triumphal entry. So let's read starting in verse 29. When he, Jesus, drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, He sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying this colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the ground. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that he had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So Jesus is making an announcement. The groom has entered in. He is walking towards his bride. And he's doing two things in this. He is making an announcement and he is instigating the religious leaders to confront him. And we'll get to the religious leaders in a moment. But that first part that I just read, he is making an announcement and instigating the crowd. I want you to see this here uh, by way of example of my dog, Franklin. (laughs) My dog is an instigator. And this is what he does. So he is eight months old. He is a little pit bull beagle mix. I thought I was getting a pit bull. Now I have a small little beagle with the face of a pit bull. And he's got the attitude of a beagle. So he has learned with our other dog, Chief, who is a yellow lab, old man, has a routine, eats and goes to bed right at six o'clock. He does not like to be bothered. He has learned, Franklin, that Chief will get yelled at if he starts playing with Franklin's toys. So I have seen with my own eyes Franklin walk into a room with his toy where Chief is laying down, put that toy in Chief's mouth, sit down and start barking at him to alert us that Chief has taken his toy so that Chief can get in trouble, so that he can instigate discipline against Chief. This is my dog. He's an instigator. Now, we may be familiar with this passage of the triumphal entry, and some of you may have heard me preach this sermon before, 
But I want you to see that Jesus coming with this announcement, riding on a donkey, he is announcing that he is king, but he is instigating the people of Jerusalem, specifically the Pharisees. And he's instigating them to do what God has planned for them to do to bring him to the cross. He has set this plan up, all of it by his will. But he's instigating the people of Jerusalem to do something about his announcement. You see, this is the first time in Jesus' ministry that he is deliberately making a matter of great display. Because when you walk through the Gospel of Luke, as we have been doing and will continue to do after Easter, or if you read through the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and John, what you'll find is that Jesus deliberately tries to keep everyone quiet when they find out who he is. There are times that he heals. There are times that he makes announcements. There are times where demons recognize who he is. And what does he say? Be quiet. For now is not the time. On several occasions, he even tells the disciples when they understand his true identity that they must keep quiet. But now, now is the time that he is making his identity known. Jesus, who seemingly tried to keep his identity hidden throughout his ministry, will put on full display for Jerusalem and the people of God that the Messiah King has come. And not only for the people of God in that moment, but for us as we're reading Luke and we walk through this narrative, we walk through this gospel, he is telling us, I am the Messiah King that the Old Testament has pointed to the one that the people of God had been waiting for, I am him. And Jesus knew what he was doing. In fact, as we'll see in a moment, or as we saw in this passage, by riding on the donkey, Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy, a very unique prophecy in Zechariah 9.9, claiming honor with his royalty. And those in the crowd who knew their Old Testament well, and this is why I would argue we should know our Old Testament well so that we can see connections like this. What Jesus is doing by riding on a donkey is fulfilling that promise in Zechariah 9.9 that the king would come riding on a donkey, a lowly mule. And this crowd would have picked up on this prophecy, this symbolism that Jesus was bringing. You see, oftentimes in the Old Testament, what prophets would do as a regular custom to try to get Israel to repent and to see what God had called them to do, was they would, they would make large imagery or large announcements through imagery. And they'd take this message to the people. And oftentimes God would have the prophets do that. We find this, uh, I was reading this this week in Isaiah 20 verse 3. Um, Isaiah was called to run around naked in the nation of Israel for three years as a way in which he was preaching and proclaiming, if you don't repent, this is what you will look like being taken into Babylonian captivity. And so this type of imagery, this type of image that God is trying to get his people to see, oftentimes the prophets would do this in the Old Testament. So Jesus coming on a mule not only fulfills the prophecy, but he's bringing an image to the crowd for them to see what, is, what he is announcing. And what he is announcing is that he is the true king and son of David, the rightful king of Israel. Because what we find again in 1 Kings 1 
is one of the first times that a king would walk in to Israel proclaiming they are king. I'm not going to have you turn over to 1 Kings 1, but I hope you would read it later on this week to see this imagery and how it connects. But in the first chapter, we find that David is weak and he is dying. And his sons are trying to figure out who's going to take over the kingdom. And so what his first son Adonijah does is takes advantage of his father's weakness, starts to try to unite all of David's men and say, I'm going to be the king. Let's unite this. Here's my intentions. I'm going to take over the kingdom when my father dies. And we find in this chapter, some are troubled, specifically Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, who had been promised that her son would ultimately reign as king. So she goes to David and she shares what Adonijah is doing. And David says, okay, here's the plan. This is what we're going to do. And this is what we read in 1 Kings 1. David, set Solomon, David says, set Solomon on a mule and take him down to the city. There have Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel. Blow the trumpet and shout, long live King Solomon. And they did just that. And the news gets around the city. Adonijah flees and fears for his life. All of his supporters flee as well. But this is a particularly, particularly crucial event in Israel's history. Because this is the first time that Israel set up a dynasty through the line of a king. If you know from your Old Testament, Saul, before David, was destroyed in battle. And all of his children with him. So there was no successor But here, when God called David to succeed Saul, David also received a promise, a covenantal promise that his family would be blessed and his son would follow him in the kingdom. And it's not until Solomon is made king that this royal line is established. And it's established again by Solomon walking into Jerusalem, much like Jesus is doing today on a mule, on a donkey. So Jesus symbolically is proclaiming himself king as he comes in on this donkey. He is proclaiming that I am the true son of David, the one king you've been longing for and been waiting for. I am him, and I'm here to restore the fallen house of David. The people clearly recognize this, right? Because they praised and they shouted, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Their use of the palm branches is why we call this Palm Sunday, is an example that they recognize victory has been won. Uh, Brian Bell in his commentary actually tells us the Romans would celebrate victory and military success through palm branches. So we, we find in the other gospels these palm branches being laid down as a recognition that victory has come. The king is here. Even the song they sing that I just read from Psalm 118 is a song of triumph. And this is what the triumphal entry is all about. This is Jesus' announcement that he is the Messiah King. And he's not only the Messiah King, but he's bringing peace as a king. Look at the psalm again that they sing in verse 38. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I hope that when you read this, it brings a recognition of a similar song 
Does anybody know who sang it in the beginning? I'll, I'll even tell you, in the beginning of chapter 1 in Luke, there was a group that sang a very similar song. I'm sorry, chapter 2. Anyone? They come from the sky. They come to the shepherds. Angels. Yes. In chapter 2, verse 14, what do they say? Glory in the highest. Peace on earth. But you notice the psalm that Luke gives here in the triumphal entry is different than what the angels have to say because Luke recognizes or he's trying to highlight that for the angels to be able to sing peace on earth, there must be peace in heaven. Because without peace in heaven, without peace between God and man, there cannot be any peace on earth. And we see that, right? We see wars, we see fighting, we see murders, stealing. There's not peace between man because of sin. And in order for that peace to be truly, truly given, there must be one who comes in the name of the Lord to defeat sin and death. And that is the, the one who is the King, Jesus. Luke is highlighting that Jesus is this one who can bring true peace here on earth. And it starts with peace in heaven, that God himself would put on flesh, become a man, live a life we could never live, die a death we so rightly deserve, and raise from the grave three days later, sealing our election as, a, as sons and daughters of God, bringing us peace. And this is why Jesus is worthy of our praise. This is why the crowd is right in giving Jesus praise. Now, the one thing that we do see here and from other gospel accounts is that the people were worshiping Jesus because they thought they were receiving physical peace. They thought Jesus was coming to bring physical freedom from Rome and the oppression that they had been receiving since they were put into captivity. But this isn't what Jesus had in mind. He came not to free them from their worldly and physical ailments, but to free them from their spiritual and eternal sins. Tim Keller makes a great point here on this passage that is not only applicable for Israel, but us as well. He says, basically what Jesus is saying is, if I liberate you now from Rome, what are you going to do about your guilt, your emptiness, your spiritual nakedness, that you are desperately trying to prove yourself? What are you going to do about the fact that your real slavery to sin and your identity crisis that is within you is still keeping you in bondage? He says you have a slavery that goes far deeper than Rome. And that is so true for us today as well. That we have a slavery that goes far deeper than just the physical ailments of this world. And we need a payment to be freed from that bondage. And that comes through Jesus. It comes at the cross. It comes in his resurrection. It comes when his perfect life is imputed to us. And we are now righteous in the eyes of God because Jesus took on the full weight and penalty of sin. And he has made peace between God and man. Paul says this in Ephesians 2, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and the strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope 
and without God in this world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself a new man in peace, in place of the two, so making peace that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby, thereby killing the hostility. Guys, this is why Jesus is worthy of our praise. Because he is the one who has made peace between God and man. He has made peace when we were far off, when we were dead in our sins, when we could not reconcile ourselves back to God. He brought us peace. Chasey Ryle says this, Thank God for the incarnation and the birth. Treasure up his gracious sayings. Seek to imitate his holy life. Cherish his blessed intercession and priesthood. Look for the second coming. But that one mighty, mysterious work to which our Lord called the attention to his disciples at that triumphal entry, he calls this announcement and he makes this, makes this announcement that he is king. He calls the attention to the world to which he especially calls the attention to his elect. The crowning act of himself is his death upon the cursed tree as our blessed substitute. This is our peace. Christ is our substitute on the cross. He takes Jesus' full wrath for sin and penalty for it. And for those who believe in him, they have now received the peace of God. You are reconciled and restored back to a right relationship with God the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is worthy of our praise. Because this is our biggest need. Our biggest need, if you have not figured this out in your life, is the sin that separates you between God. It's not physical need. It's not a financial need. It's not even a relational need. It is the sin that has separated us from the love of the Father. And it is in Jesus Christ that we can have peace. And that relationship can be restored and reconciled. And he offers it to us today. And for those of us who have, not, who have trusted in him as Lord, Luke is giving us, as if you remember to the beginning of the book, right? Luke is writing Theophilus in order that he might have assurance. But as we read it today, he's trying to show us that we can have assurance that because of Jesus' work on the cross, we know that we can have peace between God that he has reconciled us, that he has restored us to right relationship with him. And we, as the author of Hebrews says, we can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence because Jesus is our peace. He stands in our place and he is worthy of our praise. But we see from this passage that this Instigation brings confrontation. Clearly, Jesus' announcement that he is king riding in on a donkey did not receive praise from everyone. Let's take a look at how the Pharisees received Jesus riding in to the city of Jerusalem. Starting in verse 39, 
And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, talking to Jerusalem, talking to the people of God, would you, that even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your eyes will be when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave you one stone upon you in it. Sorry, my context just went out. Okay, hold on. And they will not leave you one stone turned upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So clearly, there are two groups here. The people of God in Israel who Jesus is coming to and and the Pharisees who did not like or receive this announcement that Jesus is king. And we would go on further as we'll walk through Luke more after Easter when we get to chapter 22, which is really like one or two days away from Jesus coming into Jerusalem, we find that the Pharisees have planned to kill Jesus. And they planned to kill Jesus because of the response that he had here. He didn't tell his disciples to stop praising him. And what that signified to the Pharisees is that Jesus was saying, yes, I am the one that comes in the name of the Lord. I am worthy of praise. And if you understand the Old Testament, you would know that anybody that's taking praise in the place of God deserves death. But Jesus is saying, yes, I deserve this praise because I am the king. I am the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus shows us even through his weeping that the ones he came to save in the city of Jerusalem didn't truly believe that he came as the king of peace. But this was Jesus' last plea as he enters into Jerusalem. With outstretched arms, he says, even now, will you not take me as your king? This is Jesus' confrontation with Jerusalem and with the Pharisees. Asking this question, even now, will you not take me as king? But the confrontation started back in the beginning of this triumphal entry. Jesus sets all of this up knowing that his, the crowd would be stirred up. This is why I say that he's a bit of an instigator in this moment. Because he sends his disciples to go get the donkey. He tells us what is, and tells the disciples what is about to happen. People are going to say, why do you need this donkey? And you're going to respond in this way. Jesus set all of this up. And he knew what was coming. Some commentaries would even say that Jesus sending his disciples to the town would have caused a commotion big enough to draw a crowd with him. Verse 29 tells us that drawing near to Bethany and Bethpage, we see him sending the disciples into this town. And as he's drawing near and this town hears that he's coming, this this would have drawn people out. And I say this because Bethany and Bethpage is the city where Lazarus was resurrected. 
It's the city where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. And so they would have loved Jesus. If they hear him, that he's coming into town or he's going into Jerusalem, they would have followed and praised because of their affection for him. And so doing this, Jesus is causing a commotion on purpose because he is trying to confront the city of Jerusalem as well as the Pharisees that are hard-hearted there in one final plea. Even you, would you not take me as king? And in instigating Jerusalem and instigating the Pharisees, we see how, the, we see how they resp- respond. Now, I don't think we truly understand what the Pharisees are going after and truly why they had a, a hard time accepting him as king. But like the enemies in the parable of the ten minas before, they are the ones who are the enemies trying to destroy the nobleman's reign. But we see the city of Jerusalem also in this place where they had the truths and the oracles of God that were given to them, and yet they did not receive him as king. They would not receive the condemnation, or not the condemnation, they would not receive the praise that you are my good and faithful servant. And this is what Jesus is weeping about as he enters into Jerusalem, proclaiming that he is king. Now this confrontation that Jesus brings to this city I love what Tim Keller has to say, and in, in, it's either his book, Reasons for God, or The King's Cross, one of the two. It might be both of, the two, both of them, but he says this, this confrontation is still true today. Jesus is still king. And Jesus is saying the same thing to us, that he is king over all. So what is your response in worship? Is he worthy of your praise. And the praise meaning not just your words or your song that we sing, but your life, as Romans 12, 1 and 2 would tell us. That your sacrifices and your, your life itself is your worship. Are you giving praise like this crowd, the disciples who praise him and say, yes, this is the one who comes in the name of the king. He is the king of peace. He rules and reigns over all of my life. Are you like the city who misunderstands that he's coming for physical freedom? Or you misunderstand Jesus's whole goal in transforming your life into his image, but you see him more like a genie. You use him only when you need him, or you cry out to him only when it's good for you, but he doesn't have any other impact in your life. Or have you rejected him? Jesus is the true king of peace and he offers it to us all. And he brings peace between God and man, but he doesn't stop there. That the offer of peace is to all, but he doesn't stop there, especially for those who claim that he is king. He is confronting our lives today. So what is our response? Is he king? Is he worthy of our praise? Or as C.S. Lewis says, is he a liar? Or is he a lunatic? Or have we made him Lord? What is our heart posture towards him? 
Do we respond with a life of true devotion and praise? Or are there areas in our lives that we have not submitted to him as king? John Calvin would say, our hearts are idol factories. It is easy to create idols out of anything. And so where have you not offered these up to him? Is it your thoughts? Do you not, as Paul says in Philippians 4, set your mind on the things above and live in a manner worthy of the gospel? Is it your emotions? Do you allow your desires and emotions to rule over you and war within you, as James 4 says? Have you offered your life and your finances and your future and your family plans? Is, is he king over all of that? What about those places that you don't let anyone else in? Is he king? What about your past? Some of you in here have past that the devil uses to deceive you and cause you to doubt God's love because you haven't given it over to him as king. And you don't constantly run back to him that he has transformed your life and made you new and has brought peace and reconciled you back to God. So my encouragement to you this morning is if you claim that he is king, bring those areas of your life to him. Submit to him, run to him, because he is the only one who can bring you true peace and true rest in this life and life in eternity. This is the true king who has made peace in heaven between God and man by the sacrifice that he made on the cross, bearing our sin and shame. And for those who believe we have received his righteousness imputed to us as he took on all of that sin and shame on the cross. And he is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of being praised as king in every area of our life. So I want to close with communion. And I want to connect this Passover feast that Christ is coming for with what we are learning here today in Christ coming as king. You see, as I mentioned earlier, in God's ordaining this triumphal entry. He is coming in at a time that would have been the Jews' biggest celebration of Passover. The, the remembrance of God freeing them from their slavery in Egypt and setting them free. And so Israel would worship the Lord in this week and through the breaking of bread and, and drinking of wine, and a lot of other things in their Seder meal. This Passover was a reminder of who they once were and now that they are free. And in the same way, communion is that reminder for us that much like Israel being freed from their slavery to Egypt, we have been set free from our slavery and bondage to sin. And as we learned about this morning, because of that freedom and because Christ has been imputed to us, we now have the Holy Spirit within us, we can say no to sin. We can defeat its temptations. We can fight the power because Christ lives within us. And so when we come to communion, we are reminded of that freedom and that we have been set free. And so I want to invite you up to grab the elements and what I'm going to do, I'm going to give us some time. Because the Word gives us some things that we are to do with communion in examining ourselves, not as a way of condemnation, but in a way reminding us that we are still in sin. 
we still battle the flesh. There are still areas that we have not given to the Lord as king. And the scriptures call us to examine our own hearts, to pray like David does in Psalm 139. Search my heart, O God. Help me see where I have sinned against you. So I'm going to give that time for you guys to examine yourselves. But also, I want us to understand that there is, because we've been reconciled, because there's peace between God and man, Scripture also calls us to have peace between man, between brothers and sisters in Christ. And so if there's anyone in here where there is conflict or confrontation between God's people, the Scriptures show us don't come to the altar reconcile with your brother and sister before you come. And so in your time where you're examining your own heart, if that comes up, don't take communion. Go reconcile with your brother and sister or sister and then come and partake. And then if you're not a believer in here, I would ask that you would refrain from this because this is a time in which we remember what Christ has done for us on the cross. And it's a celebration for us. And that isn't to shame you, that isn't to to put a spotlight on you, but it's more to protect you and to ask you that if there is a a thought about coming and and receiving that peace, come, come speak to me. I would love to share the good news of the gospel that brings you into this peace. So I'm going to encourage you to examine your your yourself, come and grab the elements, take that time of examination, and then I'll close us uh, in the reading of the Lord's Supper. So come and grab the elements now.